Okay. Um, where's the children? You guys, are, I'm going to need you to help me just a little bit, okay? So not, not a huge amount, but because what we're going to look at is so difficult that it's going to take a child to explain it for the grown-ups, all right? Because grown-ups get in all kinds of trouble with this one, and you probably get it right. So Jesus, our priest, let's go on to the first thing here. So this is a huge, uh, hugely important thing. I'm going to, this is the question from the catechism, question 25. I'm going to ask the question, and let's all read the answer together. How does Christ fill the office of a priest? Christ fills the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making constant intercession for us. Please go to the next one, Stephen. Okay, there's three questions here. And this is where I'm going to ask the children first. I was going to split into groups, but I'm not because we're going to look at these. But I, I'm, I'm very keen to know what your answers are. How did Jesus suffer? That's the first one. Elsa, do you know? Died on the cross. Exactly. And we're going to look at that in a moment. Why did Jesus suffer? That's just as important. Emma Jane is suggesting that Megan will answer. Maybe that's a bit unfair. It's nice of you to volunteer your friend, Emma Jane, but why did Jesus suffer, Emma Jane? Do you know? Hmm. For our sins. Okay, that's true. We'll come. And what does it mean for us? Well, we'll come on to that. But how did Jesus suffer? He died on the cross, and uh, we know that the cross was not a pleasant thing. Let's go on to the next one, please. Okay, we're going to consider about Christ the sacrifice, but first of all, Let's ask, what, what, what does a priest do? And again, I'm going to ask the children, what does the priest do? What is a priest? We're saying Christ the priest. Donald, you're looking suspicious. Do you have any idea? No? Well, I'm going to ask your mom then. Or anyone. Can anyone say, what's a priest? Because I, I sometimes get called that. You know, I come out and say, oh... Uh, I was, as you, some of you know, I play chess, and I was being introduced the other week to my opponent. He said, oh, this is Davy. He's a priest. And I said, no, I'm not a priest. And in the Tartan Cafe, one of the guys came up when we were doing a Christianity Explored, and he said, David, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what's that? He says, I don't like priests. I don't like priests. I said, oh, that's okay. We're, I said, I'm, I'm not a priest. But what does a priest do? What did a priest do in the old, what, what is a priest? Because we're not going to get anywhere unless we, Alan, you're the representative of his people before God. That's a, that's a, a great answer. It's kind of like um, Pete was talking about cricket, and in cricket you have an umpire, or in football you have a referee. And it's kind of like that, a mediator between a holy God and an unholy creature. So in the Old Testament, you couldn't just come to God. You had to come by way of sacrifice and by way of a priest offering that. And in the New Testament, that hasn't changed. We read Hebrews 9. We could, and I would love to have read the whole of Hebrews because it explains more than anything else this teaching about the priesthood of Jesus and why it's so important that Jesus is our priest. And by the way, that's why it's really important that I am not a priest. And there is really nobody in this world who is a priest other than Jesus because we do not need 
In, in the Old Testament, we had the Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, who was started the Aaronic priesthood and the, of the tribe of the Levites, and you have all the rules about the priests and the temple sacrifice and so on. But in the New Testament, you don't have that. You don't have that priesthood continuing because Jesus is our, our priest, our final priest. So, when someone says, do we need a priest? The answer is yes. What kind of priest do we need? The best one possible, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to talk about what Jesus did. Two things that uh, he did in terms of the, the catechism gives us this answer, and it's very important in terms of why Jesus is our priest. He's our priest because he's our sacrifice, and he's our priest because he prays for us. The Old Testament priest sacrificed an animal for the sins of the people. But this, Christ is different, but Christ is the sacrifice. The Old Testament priest went into the presence of God to pray for the people, and Christ also does the same. He goes and prays for us, His people. So, we're going to look, first of all, and probably mostly at Christ the sacrifice. Two things. Uh, what's, we're going to use quite a lot of um, theological terms, and that's so that you can memorize them and so that you can impress the presbytery when they come and do a quinquennial visit and you can talk about all these things. No, it's because they are the mo most helpful way of understanding. And it, 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 this goes actually fairly deep. I'm going to try and keep it as straightforward as possible, but it is important to, to grasp. Now, the active obedience of Christ, Matthew 3.15. If someone would like to find that, and then please read it out. Matthew 3.15. It's just a short verse. Okay, Alan, please. Yeah, it's the baptism of Jesus, and it's proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. When we say the active obedience of Jesus Christ, what that means is Jesus in His life on this earth actively obeyed, did everything that God the Father asked Him to do. He did everything that He was supposed to do. He obeyed on behalf of His people. He actively went out and obeyed. But in Hebrews 9, verse 22, which Brian read already, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Here's something that's happening that's not active. We call it passive obedience. And that is, Jesus was sacrificed for us. So, the life of Jesus is important because He's obeying for us. You will never, I will never obey absolutely the commands of God, but Christ did for us. But more than that, He also suffered for us. And here's a word I'm going to use, um, the word of imputation. When you've done something wrong, again, let me ask any of the children this. We use a word that says, when you've done something wrong, it begins with G and ends in T. Do you know what that word is? Or it ends in Y, actually, if you say it. guilt. You are guilty. When you've done something wrong, you are guilty. 
we will never not be guilty of our sin. At one level, you can, you can see how that is. If, if I was to kill somebody, I'm guilty of that sin. If I tell a lie, I'm guilty of that sin. No matter what anyone else does, no matter what I do, I can't take away that guilt. But when we talk about the passive obedience of Christ, what we're saying is that Christ took our guilt. The song has it, He took all our guilt and shame. And that's the idea of guilt being transferred, or the word that's used is imputed to Christ, imputation. Now, I looked imputation up in the dictionary, because believe it or not, I couldn't find it in a theological dictionary, but I found it in a normal one, and it says this, the act of imputing or charging censure, reproach, the reckoning as belonging. Now, I love that last one, and let me explain why. The act of imputing or charging censure or reproach. Here it is. If I have done something wrong, whether a child, an adult, whatever, and no matter what that thing is wrong is, if I am censured or reproached with it, it's it's being made known, I'm being accused of it, I'm being found guilty of it. So it could be that if we were in a court just now and I was being asked to stand up here and the judge pronounced, obviously pronounced me guilty. David Robertson, you are guilty of having stolen something, or you are guilty of having broken the law in some way or other. And I would be censured and reproached for it. Now, when we say that Jesus Christ was passively obedient, we mean that He took all our guilt and He took all our shame. And here's the extraordinary thing. If I have told a lie if I have murdered, if I have committed adultery, if I have blasphemed, if I have attacked God, I don't carry the reproach of it. Jesus does. Jesus is accused of that lie. Jesus is accused of that blasphemy. Jesus is accused of that murder. The reckoning as belonging, that's the phrase that I like. It is reckoned as though my sin belonged to Jesus. Paul says in Corinthians that that He became sin for us. Now, Jesus never did anything that was wrong. Never. He was actively obedient. We see that in the first one. But what's being said here is quite astonishing. It's saying that He did take all my sin and shame. Now, I know that many of you are Christians, and many of you, I think, think you grasp that and understand it. I want to say this. I think emotionally and psychologically, and possibly even intellectually, and definitely spiritually, most of us, if not all of us, really, really struggle to lay hold of that. Because if we knew that Christ had took our guilt, or Christ has taken our guilt, why would we still feel guilty? I think that there is, um, it, it, it's, it's a quite astonishing, the idea of imputation. See, some people don't like this whole idea of the cross, and we focus on the cross, and it's the center of everything. But it really is the most wonderful aspect of the gospel. You don't have forgiveness. You don't have all these other things without that. Let's go on to the next one, please, Stephen. All right, how did Christ suffer? Well, we say that God cannot suffer. Now, that's a disputable statement, but generally, you know, God is outside of time and space and so on, and Jesus was God. 
How did Jesus suffer? Well, it wasn't just that he was God. He was also human. And in his human nature, he had a human body and a human soul. In his body he suffered, and in his soul he suffered. Go to Luke 22, 44, just to give you one example. You can read any of the passion narratives, as as they're called. But uh, maybe this one, Luke 2, 44. If someone would like to read that, please. Sorry, Luke 22, 44, not Luke 2. Colin, you look as though you've got it. Jesus had a real human body. And what that meant is he really felt pain. He had real nerves. He, he was a body made of real cells. He had a real brain that was able to feel r- real pain. Christ suffered in all his senses. The Puritan Thomas Watson, when he's talking about this, he goes in, as Puritans tended to do, he goes into great detail, but I think what he, he does is right. He said, for example, on the cross in his eyes, he saw his enemies mocking and he saw his mother weeping. Now, for Jesus to see his mother weeping would have been agony for him. His ears were filled with the mockery of the people. For Jesus to be taunted, we'd think, ah, Jesus can handle that. He can cope with that. No, he couldn't. It's a horrible thing to be mocked. When he was on the cross, what did he smell? The sweat and the blood What did he taste? He was given gall and vinegar to drink. What did he feel? The head with the crown of thorns. I I suffer from migraine and had a couple this week. And it's just not not a, a pleasant feeling at all. You just wish that it would go away. And Jesus really felt that. The hands and the feet with the nails through them. The reason that the Romans put nails through the hands and the feet were because they were the most sensitive parts without bones to support so that you would be in absolute agony. Very, very rarely did people die from crucifixion except through just absolute agony. They died, they took a long, it it was designed so that you would take a long time to die very, very painfully. It's one of the most cruelest deaths, if not the cruelest death that you could envisage. And Christ suffered in that way. But he suffered in his soul also. The scripture has this idea of the winepress of his father's wrath, and and, and that's Jesus being squashed down, being oppressed, being having this heavy, heavy burden. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was a double eclipse at the cross. One was the eclipse of the sun, so that Jerusalem was in darkness, but the other eclipse is just as important. It's, and the eclipse of the sun is, is in a sense symbolic of this because it's symbolic of the Father's pleasure, which was shown at the baptism of Jesus, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, which was shown in the Garden of Gethsemane when the angels were sent, this is my son, listen to him, it's gone. There is no, this is my son whom I love, being said on the cross. And there are no angels sent to help Jesus Christ. So, Christ suffered with a human body and a human soul in immense agony. 
Now, we, when we were looking at this earlier, we were saying it's very important that there's one person, Jesus Christ, two natures, that Jesus is both God and both human, but they unite in one person, and it's the one person who suffers. There's not a sense at all in which some people have of um, Jesus' divinity taking His humanity and kind of making it not so real. Um, you see, that thing up there, which personally I can't stand, but never mind, uh, all these things, the reason I can't stand it is because it's so unreal. Even, in, even in, if, in terms of an art form, right, I look at that and I think, no, first of all, Jesus would have been naked on the cross. Secondly, it would have been much more grotesque. You could take modern art and make the cross much more meaningful than you can do with something like that because it's, people come in and they go, oh, that's really nice. And I, now, you, how can the cross be nice? It doesn't make sense. And the notion of generally on the cross you have this um, beatific Jesus, this nice Jesus with a lovely smile on his face looking down and, and blessing people from the cross. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. He really, truly did suffer in his body and his soul. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Why did Christ suffer? Go to Hebrews 9, and let me just go through these. These are ones that you can, can pick out. They, we're told. We, we really, really don't need to work at it too much. Why did Jesus suffer? In verse 12, for example, He suffered to buy us. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, having obtained or purchased eternal redemption. Jesus suffered in order to buy. He was getting something. He was obtaining something. He was buying something. And what He was buying was us, our salvation. Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Christ suffered to cleanse us. Again, it's, it's, it's very straightforward. The Scripture is, is very clear, and it is somewhat astonishing that so many people who profess to be Christians don't grasp this, don't get it, and don't under, un- understand it at all. Sometimes non-Christians get it a whole lot better. Holly Toynbee in The Guardian, when she was writing about Narnia, said, why do I need someone? I don't need anyone to die for my sin, and therefore Christianity is nonsense. And people in response to that said, well, that's not the heart of Christianity. She's misunderstood. Well, she hadn't misunderstood. She'd got it exactly right. It is the heart of Christianity, and she does need someone to die for her sin, and we need someone to cleanse us from acts that lead to death. Physical death, and eternal death. No one can cleanse themselves. No religion, no amount of good works, nothing can cleanse us. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Verse 15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Why did Jesus die? Why did He suffer? to free us, to free those who all their lives are held in slavery by their fear of death, to free those, to free us from our sins, from the power and the consequences of sin. 
verse 20. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep, to fulfill the covenant. We can't keep the Old Testament promises. We can't keep the law. We can't keep the Mosaic law or the law in the New Testament. We cannot keep the standards of God. Every time someone says, it's not very fair, is it? It's not very fair. Are you saying only people who believe in Jesus go to heaven? Yes, that's true. And the reason for that is simple. Not because people who believe in Jesus are better, but because every single human being just can't make it on their own. Whatever their religion, they can't make it. They can't keep the terms. They need someone to fulfill the covenant for them. And that is, of course, what Jesus did. Verse 22, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus died so that we can be forgiven. Verse 25, to enter heaven on our behalf. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Jesus went into heaven so that we can go into heaven. He went into heaven so that we can uh, pray, we can go before the throne of grace, so that when we die, we can go to be with the Lord. Verse 26, to do away with sin, to finish sin once and for all. Now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Now, you see, that's hugely important because one of the problems, for example, in traditional Roman Catholic teaching, which still exists, is this, that a Rome, the Roman Catholic Church will teach that there are priests and that what these priests do is that, that when we have uh, a communion, that they take the bread and they turn it into the body of Jesus, the literal body of Jesus, that they take the wine and it becomes the literal blood of Jesus. And what's happening is the sacrifice of Jesus is being reenacted, not just reenacted as a kind of drama, but actually happening again. Now, that's an astonishing teaching and one that really does take away from the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. That's why we find this hard, but that's why people like John Calvin and John Knox and so on. John Knox said he feared one mass more than he feared 10,000 um, French soldiers. And the reason for that is fairly straightforward. Because if you say to someone, you are a priest, you have the power to do this, I need to get this, then it, it does take away from assurance, it takes away from people really turning to Christ, and it blinds people. Christ suffered to do away with sin once for all. To say, well, actually, that wasn't enough. He needs to suffer some more in this rather bizarre way that it is taught. Is, in my view, anyway, at least, I think it is, it is quite horrendous. And that's not to have a go at Catholics or anything like that, which would be really, really stupid. It's just to say that when you've got teaching like that, whoever's teaching it, it's taking away from one of the most wonderful things in the whole Bible. We don't need another sacrifice. There's already been one sacrifice. We don't need another priest. We've got a great high priest. Okay, let's go on to the next one. What's the use of all this? When we, so this is how Christ suffered, why Christ suffered, and so on. Here's the use. I'm going to give you just these seven things that they, they help us. Number one, if you grasp the cross, if you grasp Christ's sacrifice, 
It helps you see the horror of sin. You won't see the horror of sin, what, not really, by somebody nagging you about it, by somebody saying, oh, that's terrible, or that's awful, or that's horrible, or that's wicked, or that's evil. Even by looking at the most evil thing on this earth happening right now, you will not understand the horror of sin as much as if you look at the cross and understand the cross. It was my sin that drove him there. That's what people find so hard to believe. You see, most people think, all right, I've done some bad things. I need forgiveness. I need newness. I love this idea of newness of life. But, nah, I I haven't done anything that would cause someone to suffer in that way. You're looking at the wrong place. You're beginning at the wrong place. Because when people do that, they're beginning with themselves and they're judging God and they're judging the cross and they're judging everything else by how they feel about themselves. But how they feel about themselves is wrong. It is better for us to judge ourselves by what Jesus did and by the cross. And therefore, it is something that is just totally horrendous to see the real horror of sin. I'm uh, astounded at how often I go places and people, when I'm discussing and debating with non-Christians, they'll say, David, you know, this is that, this is, honestly, this is probably, I hear this now more than anything else. David, you seem a really nice person. They're discerning people to a point. David, you seem a really nice person, but you have an awful view of human beings. So, what do you mean? So, you, you believe that human beings are sinful. You believe that human nature is not good. And I said, absolutely, and I can prove it. But they can't cope with that. They have to believe that human nature is good. But what really shocks them, and I got a letter last week from somebody saying, what shocked me more than anything else was when you said that you were evil. And he said, as far as I can understand, you really believe that. I said, how can you, how can you think that you are evil? He says, David, you're not evil. You're a good guy. You know, I, the answer to that is to say, I look at the cross, and I see in the cross something of the blackness and the horror. Not enough, but the use of this teaching helps you to see the horror of sin. The use of it is to display God's mercy and justice. It shows God's wrath as well. It's the two things go together. You see the mercy of God on the cross, but you also see the wrath of God on the cross. It's not the devil who's angry with sin. It's not the devil. It's not as though the devil is angry and God is merciful. It is God who is angry with sin. Also, the cross does help you to see the love of Christ. Now, you need these first two in order to really appreciate that. I love Augustine's quote, which I think I put up there. Yep. The cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. It's funny. I meet so many people who say things along the lines of, It's evil to believe in the atonement as the Bible teaches it. Someone will say, I don't believe in your Old Testament God. I believe in the New Testament God of love. If you don't see the cross and you don't grasp the cross, you you will never, ever grasp the love of Christ. You're left with a really kind of sort of wet and woolly love where Jesus is wandering around going, I just love everybody, I love everybody. Whereas here... That love has substance. That love has content. That love has meaning. That love acts. 
And it's got to affect us. Thomas Watson says, not to be affected with Christ's love in dying is to have hearts harder than rock. But there's a lot of Christians who do, you see, because we've turned the cross into a doctrine. We've turned the cross into something that we tick the box. And we just don't grasp this wonder of the cross. Now, that's why I I like a lot when um, a lot of the songs that Mark has chosen when we've been going in the evenings, a lot of them have been to do with the cross and the wonder of the cross and the glory of the cross. And we need that. We need to grasp that, to see the love of Christ. Number four, the use is to see the excellence of His sacrifice, what we call the wonder of the cross. It is absolutely perfect. In Hebrews 10 and verse 14, it says, because by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's just perfect. It is, in that sense, astonishingly beautiful. It works. It's meritorious. It's beneficial. When you think of, try and grasp this idea of Christ as our priest, you see the the excellence of His sacrifice. Number five, you can apply it to your life. Cyprian said this, by faith we drink the blood of Christ. Watson argues, it's not gold in the mind that enriches, but gold in the hand. And what he's saying with that is simple. He's saying, it's no use having this doctrine on a piece of paper. It's no use having this doctrine out there. You need to take this teaching and you need to apply it by faith to your own heart and to your own soul so that you believe that it was for you that Christ hung and suffered there. And it's not in some kind of magical ritual that you take some substance, bread and wine, and and that changes you. It's that you, as Cyprian put it, by faith we drink the blood of Christ, which may seem a horrific image, but it's just simply stating this, that once you grasp the cross and apply it in faith to your own life, everything changes. So, number six, it brings comfort. Calvin says it's the hinge and fountain of our comfort. Our sins are laid on Christ and they are no more ours than His. It's not a wonderful idea. Our sins are laid on Christ, and they are no more ours than His. Just think, even if you stopped just now and thought about some of the worst things that you've done, just think about something that you've done this week, something you feel really bad about, something you feel really guilty about, something that has really messed up your life, something that is a barrier between you and other people, something that is most definitely a barrier between you and God. And if you grasp the cross then that sin is no more yours than it is Christ's. You, it's, it's, it's gone. It's forgotten about. You haven't forgotten about it because you don't grasp the cross. But God has. With His stripes, we are healed. And number seven, of course, the use is just simply that we are to praise God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Revelation 5 verse 9, uh, we praise the Lamb who was slain in the midst of the throne. If you can't praise God after understanding and grasping something of the cross, we will never, ever praise Him. Okay, so that's Christ as a sacrifice. That's the main part of what I want to say. Um, I I, I do want to say something about Christ as praying, though. Let's go on to the next one. Just uh, a couple of parts to this. In the Old Testament, when Aaron entered the holy place, um, let me ask the children this again. What was the holy place called that the high priest went into? 
Special building, not a church. Elsa. Temple, brilliant, well done. Gold star. The temple. Did your dad whisper that to you? No. You knew that. Good, excellent. Went into the temple. When Aaron, and the holy place was in the middle of the temple. When he entered into the temple, the bells rang. Okay? When Christ entered into heaven, when Christ prays for us, the bells ring. Christ is holy, Hebrews 7.26. Christ is faithful, Hebrews 2.17. And Christ never dies, Hebrews 7.23. Because the trouble with the priest before was the priest was not holy, the priest was not faithful, always faithful, and the priest did die. But Jesus, as our high priest, is always holy, always faithful, and never dies. And so, Christ enters into the presence of the holy God on our behalf, and God listens. He calls for acquittal. These are the children I have bought. They're free. And I love what Jesus does. Uh, Somebody compared this to a lawyer. When a lawyer is appearing on your behalf, a really good lawyer is going to cost you a lot of money. Jesus does it freely. There is no charge. You cannot bribe your way into the presence of God. You cannot say to Jesus, well, look, actually, can you take this, and that'll make it more acceptable. It's all done. The other thing about Jesus that makes him different from an advocate or a lawyer is lawyers don't usually get passionate, do they? Well, maybe I better not say that, but no, they probably don't. Um, Jesus does it with feeling. Again, in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 15 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That's an extraordinary verse. There's this compassion in Christ, this empathy in Christ, this feeling in Christ. You see, again, people will say, oh, I like that. I want Jesus to be touchy-feely. I want Jesus to empathize with me. I want, but I don't land the cross. I don't, you don't understand that that's precisely what causes it. It's because he suffered. It's because he's lived. It's because he was actively and passively obedient that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then he goes with knowledge in prayer. He prays for us with knowledge. If you pray anything according to the will of God the Father, but here's our problem, we don't know what the will of God the Father is, but Jesus does. And I love the idea of Jesus praying for me. When the the team were in Burundi, it was important that we prayed for them. And it's it's a great thing to know that people are praying for you. Our our good friend Tom Courtney in Spain, he's he's, um, ill, and please do pray for him. Uh, His wife and daughter uh, wrote an email saying, you have no idea what it means, what encouragement it is to know that God's people all over the world are praying for Tom. And that's a wonderful thing. But I know a greater encouragement than that. It's important, but I know a greater encouragement than that, and it's to, to, to know that Jesus is praying for you. Now, that's, you have to stop and think about that. I have to stop and think about that because I'm really saying Jesus right now is praying for me. He's praying that my faith wouldn't fail. He's praying that I would live according to the... And just, it's just an extraordinarily secure and wonderful thing. It's there. It's, it's consistent all the time. He ever lives, as the AV puts it, to make intercession. He ever lives to make intercession. He is consistently 
interceding for his people. Let's go on to the next one, Stephen. This is the last one. What are the results of that? First of all, justification. Jesus praying for us. Jesus dying for us and then praying that that would be applied means we're justified. We're declared righteous. The, the, the son prays, these are my children. I have died for them. Protect them. Look after them and so on. Is the father ever going to turn around and say, no, 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 they're not declared righteous? No, we are justified. Secondly, the anointing of the Spirit. Jesus says to the disciples, I will pray the Father and he will send you another comforter, a counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. What happened with Lydia? We're told the Lord opened her heart as Paul preached the word. And that's, again, the most wonderful thing that happens with us because Christ is our great high priest. He prays for us, and as a result, the Spirit is sent to us. We are anointed by the Holy Spirit. Some people will then say, ah, well, you know, you're, you're saying all this happens. Does that mean that we shouldn't pray? No. It means, actually, that our prayers are heard by God. Revelation 8, verse 3 Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Our prayers are, if you like, taken by Christ, and they are a fragrant offering to God. Christ's prayer purifies our prayers, and therefore, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can come into the presence of God because we have a great high priest. We do not come into the presence of God because we are great. We do not come into the presence of God because, hey, God's our buddy and everything's okay. We come into the presence of God because we have a great high priest who's sacrificed for us. And it means that we persevere. Jesus prays for his church, John 17. And he prays, Father, keep them. Keep them. I've died for them. You keep them. And for me, that's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. See, I could never belong to a church which said to me, well, the Pope is the head of the church, or the Queen is the head of the church, or the minister is the head of the church, or this prophet is the head of the church. Can't belong to that church because no Pope, no Queen, no bishop, no minister, no prophet, no leader is ever, ever going to be able to keep me. They could be the most holy person in the world, and their prayers wouldn't rise beyond the ceiling. But to have Jesus Christ as my high priest, to have Jesus Christ as the one who prays for me, to have Jesus Christ as my advocate, you know, having an advocate is such a great thing. Um, I, I like watching the West Wing, and uh, it's quite funny sometimes that when the president, President Bartlett, on a couple of occasions, episodes I've been watching recently, somebody is saying, well, uh, the one that stuck in my mind actually was um, where turkeys were being pardoned for Christmas. And apparently there was one turkey to be pardoned. They had to choose, and the woman said, I want to pardon two turkeys. And he said, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And um, the guy was in charge of the turkeys. And then the man said, well, actually, I can, because I'm the president. Oh, you're 
president changed absolutely. The president advocating, okay, advocating for a Turkey is not quite in the same league as what we're talking about. But to have someone speaking on your behalf, it's just a wonderful thing. I mean, I was trying to think of another way, another illustration. I went to Ibrox Stadium once, and I was trying to get into the stadium and couldn't get in and put a suit on and walk past a few people and was trying to get right into the manager's office and the secretary said, I'm sorry, you don't have an appointment, you can't get in. And that was it. There was no way I could get in until the manager, who was a guy called John Gregg, came out and said, oh, let the boy in. And I got in because the manager was on my side advocating for me. Well, that's a trivial example compared to what we're talking about here. But just multiply that a million, million, million times can't get into the presence of God, why not? Because you're sinful, because you're not good enough, and all that kind of stuff. It's true. But someone is advocating for you. Someone is praying for you. Someone is speaking for you. And it's someone who died for you. And that someone is the second person of the Trinity. That someone is Jesus Christ. He bought the church with his own blood. That's why the doctrine of Christ's priesthood is such a liberating, liberating doctrine. I am forgiven. I am accepted because of what Christ has done. And although tomorrow I may fail and stumble, in fact, although tomorrow I will, although this week I will sin and do things that are wrong, I will come back here next Sunday and I will come into the presence of the living God and I will get up in the morning and I will enter the presence of the living God and I will be able to do so because of Jesus Christ. You get that, you've got Christianity. You get that, you've got the core of the gospel. And everything else stems out from that. So my prayer and hope is that uh, you and I will lay hold of it. And maybe I was wrong saying earlier that a lot of us don't get it. I feel I don't get it a lot of the time. And for me, it's the most wonderful thing to just come back to the cross. There's a... um, a clip on YouTube that I've been watching every week, actually, because I, I, I still find it very, very moving, about, talking about the wonder of the cross and about history being split in two, and talks about the dangers of, of us forgetting the wonder of the cross. Well, let's pray that we don't. Let's just bow our heads in prayer.